Okay, so tonight we're going to pick it up in Numbers chapter 31 as we're going forward verse by verse through the book of Numbers on Tuesday nights. As we come to Numbers 31, we're on the back end of the wilderness wandering for the Israelites, the Jews. One generation with their unbelief refused to enter into the promised land about 40 years before. Everyone now has died of that generation that was over 20 on that first census that took place there at the beginning of this journey. We've had a second census, which is the next generation, everyone that was under 20 or born after that time in the wilderness. And as they're wrapping up the 40 years of wilderness wandering, it's it's a wrap-up for Aaron. Well, Aaron's already passed away. Miriam, his sister, has passed away. Aaron was the first high priest. His son Eliezer is now the high priest, and Phineas is a high-profile person, his grandson. And then we have uh, Moses is still alive, but he's in the last He's in the last chapter. I mean, he's right there at the finish line, and we're going to even see that tonight. So remember, Numbers is more like a historical record chronologically of the wilderness wandering. When we get to Deuteronomy, in just a few weeks, it's Moses' final message of exhortations to the nation of Israel in pretty much the final month or two of his life. So we'll focus on that from here to uh, June and our 18-year anniversary as a church being here in this building. But for now, we're finishing up Numbers, and we're kind of getting that historical record as it played out. And so we even revisit Balaam tonight and his stuff that we studied for a couple of weeks. So that's our background as we pick it up in chapter 31, that we've, we're just getting these different reaffirmations of things, and it's all, man, they're, they're on the east side of the Jordan River, they're looking at the promised land, and they're getting ready to go in. And this is what we read in verse 1 of chapter 31. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the children of Israel. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm some of yourselves for war. Let them go out against the Midianites to take vengeance for the Lord on Midian. A thousand from each tribe of all the tribes in Israel you shall send to the war. So they were recruited from the divisions of Israel, 1,000 from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. Then Moses sent them to the war, 1,000 from each tribe. He sent them to the war with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the holy articles and the signal trumpets in his hand. And they warred against Midian, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And they killed all the males. They killed the kings in Midian, the kings, verse 8. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed, Evi, Rikam, Zur, Hor, Reba, the five kings of Midian. Balaam, the son of Beor, they also killed with the sword. And the children of Israel took the women of Midian, captive with their little ones and took his spoil all their cattle all their flocks all their goods they also burned fire all the cities that where they dwelt and all their forts and they took all the spoil as booty of man and beast this is the introduction in this chapter to these events concerning Midian so we need to review ourselves we need to review for ourselves the events of Midian the Midianites were a nomadic people We know that. They were on the east side. Though they were nomadic, they were large in numbers, and they felt threatened by Israel as they saw Israel come from the south, on the southeast side of the Dead Sea, coming up toward the Promised Land. If you recall, Balak was their leader. Balak never consulted the Lord, which he wouldn't because he worshipped Baal and stuff, but he never even approached Moses to say, what's your intention? We know that when the children of Israel went by Edom and some other parts of their journey, The people came out and said, what's your intention? What are you doing? And Moses spoke and said, hey, we're going to this land. This is the land God given us over here, the modern land of Israel, the land of Canaan. That's our home. That's where we're going. And so they didn't, you know, Edom said, you can't go this way. And they went around. 
But Sihon and Og, they, they, they declared war on Israel, and Israel's victorious over those kings and their kingdoms. And then the Midians, they were moving up, and so the Midians like, well, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna curse these guys. Remember the story, Balaam hires, Balak hires Balaam to come and curse them, and we spent a couple weeks, both verse by verse and topically, looking at the amazing story of Balak and Balaam, and that you can't curse what God has blessed. And we started the year by teaching how you can't curse the church because God's blessed the church. So Balak had all this wealth, and he had all this fear, and he hired this prophet for hire, a sorcerer, if you will, but one yet the Lord put his spirit upon to speak truths about the future, even concerning Jesus Christ coming to reign. We saw that in the four oracles of Balaam. But in the end, Balak hired Balaam and offered him all of his wealth to curse Israel, believing that he cursed them, they would be cursed, but he, he never cursed them. But we know now from the New Testament, giving us more light on Balaam and what he did with Balak, when they parted ways there back in chapter 25 of Numbers, they didn't really part ways. There's missing parenthetical facts to the story that we know. We know that Balaam gave Balak counsel on how to destroy Israel. You can't curse them, but what you can do is you can get the women to go down with their false gods and seduce these men sexually. And if that happens, they'll violate, well, we know they'd be violating the first two commandments, no other gods and no idols. And when that happens, God himself will chastise them, curse them, and judge them. So that's how they can be cursed. Not that you can curse them, but if you can get to implode and trip over themselves and bring his wrath on them themselves by their own decisions, he will judge them. And that's exactly what happened. And we know in the book of Revelation to the church of Pergamos, Jesus actually talks about the counsel of Balaam to Balak, that he seduced, he gave the counsel to seduce the men with the women in harlotry and sexual morality with their false gods. That's exactly what happened. So with that background, we know then that 24,000 Israelite men were killed as a consequence of this action. Now let's, let's look at that number because it's easy to forget numbers and the magnitude of numbers. 24,000 people is a lot of people. 53,000 Americans died in the Vietnam War. So 24,000 is half the total, almost half the total people killed in the Vietnam War. We think how sad it was watching all the dead bodies come home from the Afghan War in the back of the cargo planes, the Iraqi war, those numbers aren't even close to 24,000 for American citizens. 24,000 is a very large amount of people. And we also know that it was Phineas who's in this story who, it was a plague of the Lord, and it was Phineas who ran after and caught one of the leaders of Israel, most likely in sexual morality, with one of the Midianite women that he thrust him through with the javelin. And we talked about that. God made a covenant with him. You say, wow, what kind of covenant does God make with a man who spears two people through committing sexual morality with a javelin? Well, I'll tell you, a covenant of blood? No. A covenant of wrath? No. A covenant of peace. He took life to save life, and he stopped the plague. That's what he did. So Phineas was a hero. I mean, there's only so many covenants in the Bible, right? Very few. Phineas got a personal covenant. And that should really get our attention as we come to this story with Phineas in this storyline. He's got the trumpet. They've got the articles of the house of the Lord. He's running point. So as they have to avenge themselves by God's decree against the Midianites, he's running point. God can trust him to run point on a bigger campaign because he is faithful in a smaller campaign. See, when you're faithful 
with the zeal of the Lord and willing to do difficult things and God makes a covenant with you, a covenant of peace because you understood how serious something was and you took the stand, whatever comes hell or high water, you do that. That's what Phineas did. And so now with an even more serious situation to represent God's wrath being executed through men on a people group is very unique and very rare. Let me say that again. To represent God's wrath and to fulfill God's wrath, actually to avenge God, to avenge the people of God in time, space, and matter is very rare. Because we know in the New Testament we're told not to avenge ourselves. That what does the New Testament say in the book of Hebrews? Vengeance belongs to the Lord, not to men. So when we look at the New Covenant and the fullness of who we are as a church, we're never called to avenge ourselves or to execute wrath. So in the fullness of all things in the kingdom of God, as the church, we don't avenge ourselves, we don't defend ourselves, and we're not the wrath of God. However, we are told in the book of Revelation, those who are martyred for their faith and beheaded, what do they say? How long, O Lord, before you avenge your people? So even in the last day of the last timeline of church history, when the wrath of God is upon humanity because Revelation 6 says the wrath of the Lamb has come and who is able to stand. So there is a natural thing for the body of Christ when you've been ripped off or taken advantage of to want God to avenge you from those injustices because there's a difference between revenge and avenge. And we need to understand that as we look at verse 1, take vengeance. There's a subtle difference in the words because revenge is just to get back and it can be without restraint. But vengeance actually in, in, in the context carries itself a, a retribution that's a justice for an injustice. And that's what you get here because God says, take vengeance on the Midianites for the children of Israel. So God has actually given a decree like a judge in a courtroom that the proper punishment would take place to institute justice for the people of Israel because of what the Midianites did to them. So the Midianites seem to have gotten away with it to some degree. And the consequence of 24,000 Israelites being killed is a whole other element in the story. And Phineas is a hero. But here God says, okay, the dust is settled. Here's what you're going to do. You need to avenge my people on the Midianites. You need to avenge them. 12,000. 12,000 soldiers, and they did. So that's the vengeance of the Lord. Again, throughout the Bible, if you do a Google search on words in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, and you look up the wrath of God or vengeance, not revenge, but vengeance, you'll find it's there. I mean, it's there quite a few times. We know, for example, Sodom and Gomorrah, we're told that God took out vengeance on Sodom and Gomorrah. That's interesting. Who was he avenging? What justices, injustices was he making right when he took out vengeance? And we're told about the vengeance on Sodom and Gomorrah that it's what? Second Peter, Jude? It's an example for us to learn from as the church in the New Testament that God's wrath is revealed against ungodliness and ungodly men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, as we're told in Romans 1.17. The wrath of God is revealed, and we're told his wrath is revealed in harmonizing scripture with the vengeance he actually put forth his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah supernaturally. Now there's a wrath of man and a wrath of God. There's a vengeance of men and there's a vengeance of God. So from the dawn of creation until the trumpet sounds for the church and the end of the age in the sense of the the fullness of the great tribulation period that Revelation describes, God has at various times executed vengeance according to his justice and his moral character. This is one of those times. And a lot of people don't like that. 
People don't like the wrath of God. They don't like the justice of God and the judgment of God. They often differentiate them. But for perfect justice, we need to understand God who's moral is light and he's light and no darkness to him at all morally. For him to be a perfectly just God, there has to be perfect justice and vengeance correctly upon injustices. Most of us can think of at least one person right now who's been ripped off by fraud and other people taking advantage of them, maybe even in the last year. All the phone calls, everything, all the people misrepresenting Social Security, all this stuff, all the scams on the elderly, people calling up saying, hey, you forgot to show for jury duty, but you can pay this fine right now for $500, and it'll be all good. And people, and those are injustices. That's fraud. Somebody has to make that straight. For, for everything to be right in eternity, there has to be, for every time the Ten Commandments have been broken in human history, and that's, that's the Ten Commandments, there has to be perfect justice. For those who are redeemed, it's Jesus on the cross. For those that are not, it's, it's perfect justice in eternity. And there are times that God's wrath, his justice, and his vengeance takes place in time, space, and matter, and that's his business. He has decreed vengeance upon different people groups in the Old Testament through the prophets at various times. And he even says in Romans chapter 9 that those who would question his wrath, who are you, O man, to question God? I'll have mercy on whom I want to have mercy, and I'll condemn who I want to condemn. And we, if we truly trust in Jesus and his love demonstrated for us on the cross, we can truly trust that his love is perfectly executed in justice as well. Because ultimately, it's Jesus who's behind all vengeance and all wrath. Because the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. And Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but the world is what? Already condemned. So see, really, we were born under wrath, and until we're born again, we are under wrath. We're under God's vengeance against sin, and we're sinners and rebels. So tonight, if we're gathered here born again and a new creation in Christ, we've passed from death to life, and we've passed from wrath and vengeance of the Lord to life and justification in the Lord. And for that, we praise his name like we're singing these songs before service for 25 minutes, because we have passed from death to life. We have experienced mercy. We have experienced grace, and that's a good thing. But you know, not all people do, and most people don't even want it, because broad and wide is the path that leads to destruction, and few enter thereby, but narrow is the gate that leads to life. Therefore, we enter by that gate. Most people that we know in the human experience that you come in contact with, people we watch on TV, whatever, if they're not born again, they're under wrath. And when they stand before the throne of God, and the books are open, there's perfect vengeance by God upon them for their sins before him. God is holy, and he must be considered holy by those, by those to whom approach him. And so when we come to a text like this, because they're going to wipe out the kids too, we need to understand God is light, and him is no darkness at all. And I've never had a problem with God wiping out people groups because it's his universe, and he made humanity. And I hope you don't either. And if you do, just put it in your file. Don't ever be afraid of the Old Testament. I had someone say, I'm so afraid of the Old Testament. Why? All scripture's profitable. It's for our benefit. Like, we should never, I don't need to apologize for God's word or defend God or his character and his word. I'm just teaching it properly. We should embrace all of his word. The whole counsel of God, Paul said. What do you say? I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Why? Because he declared the whole counsel of all God. There's people who give you seven principles to live a godly life, and they'll be devoid of the counsel of God, the whole counsel of God. And they don't want to talk about God's wrath or his vengeance for his people. I think it's a good thing that God's going to avenge his people because the body of Christ has suffered great things in 2020 all over the planet with persecution where people have come against them in, in many countries where Christians are profoundly attacked and falsely accused under blasphemy laws and these other things. And 
It's not us. Vengeance doesn't belong to us. But if God's going to avenge his people, that's his prerogative and that's his choice. It's his universe. So when God pronounces vengeance for the people, his people of covenant, that's his business. And I would just say amen and good for him. He's the Lord. Let God be true and every man a liar. And you know the Midianites? They tried to destroy God's people. They tried to destroy the promises of God for you and me for faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus was promised in the fourth oracle to come to these people. And then these guys conspired to destroy the people altogether and destroy the Messiah from coming into the world. If that's what they get before God, then that's what they get. And they brought it on themselves. And it happened a long time ago. And by the way, obviously, if you know much about human history, when the Poles conquer the Russians, they conquer them and they take everybody captive and kill them. When, you know, when the Ukrainians, the Cossacks conquer the Mongolians and vice versa, or when the Aztecs conquer the Incas or whatever, like this is what people do. That this doesn't happen all the time is still pretty amazing. Everybody wants to rule over someone else. So he called for them to take vengeance upon the Midianites, and they did. And they killed Balaam, the author of the plan that resulted in the death of 24,000 Israelite men at the hand of the Lord. That plan was construed in the mind of Balaam through the counsel he gave to Balak. And so here he is. He also was killed with the sword. Now, we touched on it briefly a couple weeks ago, but here it is in the record. It's like God's tying up loose strings on the back end of this book. So they had a difficult thing to do, but it was the Lord's thing to do. And we know that it's not, we're not called to do it, but you get to the book of Joshua, they're called to do it. I mean, there's a unique generation that saw God walk on earth and perform miracles that defy the laws of time, space, and matter, the ministry of Jesus Christ. And for 30 years, things happened, not for 30 years, for three years, but for 33 years, God walked among us, Emmanuel, God with us. That's great. But in the same sense, in Joshua's generation, as they went to the land, God had pronounced the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full, but when he brought his people in, it was full. And that generation, Joshua and those guys, they had a really hard thing to do. They had to take life in obedience to the Lord because they were the instruments of his wrath and vengeance upon those people. That's something we don't have to wrap our minds around because we haven't been called to do that. But still we need to understand God's will is perfect. And his judgments are perfect. And I tell you right now, when we stand before the Lord, we'll know his judgments are perfect against the Midianites for what they did to his people of covenant, Israel, in their timeline. We also see something else. It's Moses. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people, verse 2. Afterward, you'll be gathered to your people. So think about this. Moses has led his people this far. He's led the people for 40 years to the wilderness. He's on the edge of the promised land. And God says, you're not going in. You can look at it from the mountain and get a good view. And you're not going in. And then here, how's this? The Lord says, yeah, there's still one more thing for you to do. You know, like you think you want to, you know, retirement. You're going to go independent living, assisted living, maybe memory care. You know, it's just, you know, it's no big deal. They bring me my meals three times a day. It's all kind of going this way or whatever. I'm living in the granny flat in the back of the, of the main house or something. And we're just going to, you know, it's all good. It's good. Like, we really like this. Sunrise and seagulls and beach and the sound of ocean and all that for real. And all of a sudden, God goes, hey, you, you know what? You got one more thing you got to do. You got to avenge my people on the Midianites. So if something really hard comes your way on the back end, just think of Moses being told to avenge the Lord's people in the Midianites. If, you know, we talk about like the restful years, retirement years, if in the peak of your retirement, God says, I want you to do something that's the hardest thing you've ever done, like get up and teach the Bible with an oxygen mask on, Pastor Chuck, at Calvary Costa Mesa. 
Because we always felt empathy when we saw Chuck up there with the oxygen mask teaching the Bible. He wasn't going to stop. The messages got sorted, but he never stopped. Maybe he wanted to stop. He's dying of lung cancer. Maybe he wanted to stop. But he didn't. Maybe the Lord told him, don't you stop. We don't know. Maybe that was the hardest thing he ever did the last two years of his life at Big Calvary where the, where the planet was at, where the country was at, where the Calvary movement was at, sensing the, the strife and division that would come as soon as he stepped into eternity, like the tribes of Israel. Maybe the hardest thing he ever did was get in that pulpit with, a, with an oxygen mask and teach verse by verse till the very last day. And if you've never seen what it looks like, you can Google YouTube, Pastor Chuck Smith, and you can see his last sermon video. It's like 28 minutes long. I've watched it. So we don't know. But I look at this and go, wow, Moses, Moses never got to retire. He never got to take the, the med cruise or the Caribbean cruise. He never got to go to Vegas and just waste all of his money for a weekend or something like people think of doing when they're retired. No, you're going to take vengeance on the Midianites. It's the last thing you're going to do. Maybe the hardest thing he ever had to do. He was called to do it. Who knows what God might call us to do that's hard in our future and even in our final chapter, but I hope to God in Jesus' name that we will obey him, whatever it looks like, in our final chapter. Verse 12. Then they brought the, the, the captives, the booty, and the spoil to Moses, to Eleazar the priest, to the congregation, the children of Israel, to the camp in the plains of Moab by Jordan across from Jericho. And Moses, Eleazar the priest, and all the leaders of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. But Moses was angry at the officers of the army with the captains over thousands and captains over hundred who had come from the battle. And Moses said to them, have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident pure. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known a man intimately. But keep alive for yourselves all the young women, all the young girls who have not known a man intimately. And as for you, remain outside the camp seven days. And whoever has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. We studied that in Leviticus, that process. Verse 20. Purify every garment, everything made of leather, everything woven of goat's hair, and everything made of wood. Then Eleazar the priest said to the men of war who had gone to the battle, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord commanded Moses. Only the gold, the silver, the bronze, iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can endure fire, you shall put through fire, and it shall be clean. And it shall be purified with water of the purification. But all that cannot endure fire, you shall put through water, and you shall wash your clothes, and on the seventh day be clean, and afterward you may come into the camp. So everything had to be cleansed. There's a defilement on everything. Now, uh, just a couple of parenthetical thoughts to think about concerning what takes place here. First of all, the virgin girls would for sure be innocent. They were not part of what happened in Peor, right? If they're virgin, they weren't part of the sexual morality and the, idol the idolatry that went with it and that brought the chastening. So they're actually innocent. And by God's grace, they find mercy. They would have probably been absorbed into the tribes and their descendants become Israelites. Think about this. This happened with who else? Huh? How about Rahab? Rahab was a Canaanite. She found mercy and grace. She's actually in Hebrews 11 for her faith. And what about, uh, there's another Moabite, right, from the east? Ruth, of course, Ruth. Ruth is there too. And her, Jesus comes through Rahab. And, and, and well, Rahab's mentioned in the New Testament and Jesus comes through Ruth. So that these women who were virgins and not guilty with the other women, they find mercy and they come under somehow into the, the people of promise. And how it plays out, I don't really know, but they found mercy. And again, I go back to Romans 9, like that we find mercy is what matters to me. 
God's not obligated to any of us. Like, what if, this is what makes it such an amazing saving grace. What if Jesus didn't come down on the cross, and we're still there in Jerusalem trying to find a red heifer? And we're bringing, remember, we just studied this on Saturday, right? The morning sacrifice, the evening sacrifice, the Sabbath sacrifice on top of the morning, besides the, the morning evening sacrifice, and then the once a month sacrifice, and then the holiday sacrifices of the Passover, first fruits, tabernacle, the trumpets, all that. Like, what if, like, what if we were still doing that, waiting from an incompletion for a completion? We just got to thank the Lord for all the stupid things we ever did when we should have been killed and would have been justifiably struck down by the Lord that we weren't struck down by the Lord and that we found mercy. And I said before, when we come to God executing wrath on humanity through humanity, which is very rare, but we have it here tonight, is uh, don't, don't judge God's word. In case you're tempted to, don't give the devil a place to stumble you or judge you, cause you to judge God's word. Let God's word judge you. And if you're uncomfortable with this, just put in that file that, Lord, I'm uncomfortable with this, and you, you don't know this, and you fall back with, you know, Jesus on the cross. Because Jesus on the cross is the ultimate testimony of the Lord. And, man, this was their generation. How does it be one of these 12,000 troops that have to do this? But, you know, if you think about your neighbors that died, humanity is desperately sinful. Just think about the pre-flood world, too, like when wrath came upon them. There's no redeeming it. There was nothing you could do to redeem them. And when God gives up on people, man, God forbid he ever give up on us. I I don't question or wonder why God would give up on anybody and put them under wrath and vengeance. I'm more questioned by, like, why God would show me mercy and show us all mercy the way he has. So when you leave here tonight, just be glad he's shown you mercy and shown me mercy and shown us mercy and shows his church mercy. Because this really is, like, what we deserve. So praise the Lord for his mercy. Now, uh, the fire and the water, this cleansing, so it all had to be cleansed. We pick up in verse 25. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, by the way, I have to say this about the children too, because I never like when children get uh, uh, executed, whatever. I'll just tell you right now, in that Middle Eastern culture, we understand the perpetual generation of vengeance and payback, right? So if you remember 9-11, the images coming out of the uh, Palestinian territories, like nine-year-olds with guns, like there's a perpetual uh, requirement in many of these cultures that you must avenge what happened the previous generation, and the cycle never ends. So for example, in World War I, there was all the slaughter in uh, the Serbs and Croats and all that, and then the Croats paid them back in World War II with the help of the Nazis, and then we had the Serbian War. It just goes on and on and on. And even with the uh, conflict in Armenia just a few months ago, that's, they're still fighting over the same piece of property that they've been fighting over for thousands of years with the same people. And what did the Armenians do when they retreated under the pressure of Russia and the U.S. unified together on this? What did they do? Scorched earth. They destroyed every building, every vineyard, every fruit tree, everything, because they had to vacate. And at some point, more than likely, the Armenians will want to go back and reclaim that land as theirs. It all gets, it just goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And you study world history, this is what happens. So the next generation of Midianites were bent on destroying Israel's right to exist and their calling from the Lord. And if I got to fight a great white shark, I'd rather fight it when it's one foot long rather than 15 feet long. That's just the way it is. And again, very unique. It's very unique in its context, but very important. Because if Israel doesn't persevere, and if God doesn't wipe out the Amalekites and Haman and all these people in the thousand plus years where Amalekites and these people are trying to eliminate Israel, then the Messiah doesn't come to save us and the world. Because Jesus, the Messiah, comes through Israel. 
And the devil has tried to destroy Israel as a nation from their birth at Mount Sinai to this very day. Because there's still promises connected to Israel to this very day. So all, all the death camps, Auschwitz, and all those places, they're all, it's all related to the same thing. The devil wants to destroy Israel. He's always wanted to destroy Israel because the Messiah comes to Israel and the return of the Messiah is promised to Israel. This is an eternal realm, spiritual realm battle that's been going on before we came. It'll be going on if the Lord doesn't come back after we leave. And, and these women, you know the greatest threat to Israel as they're going to the promised land? The greatest threat to Israel was not the walls of Jericho. The greatest threat to Israel were the women with the little idols. The greatest threat to America is not countries against us. It's the corruption and evil from within us. The fall of Rome came from within and the removal of moral boundaries. And we've brought it from within. And the threat has, we've, America done its own damage to itself. And the church has done its own damage to itself. And so like, this is, these women that were executed, more so than any army on the other side of the Jordan River, they were the greatest threat to destroy Israel. Verse 25, division of the plunder. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, count up the plunder that was taken at, of man and beast, you and Eleazar the priest and the chief fathers of the congregation and divide the plunder to two parts between those who took part in the war and who went out to battle and all the congregation. And levy a tribute for the Lord on the men of war who went out to battle. One of every 500 of the persons, the cattle, the donkeys, and the sheep, take it from their half and give it to Eleazar the priest as a heave offering to the Lord. And from the children of Israel, half of you shall take one of every fifth drawn, and the persons, the cattle, the donkeys, and the sheep from all the livestock, give them to the Levites who keep charge of the tabernacle of the Lord. So Moses and Eleazar the priest did as the Lord commanded Moses. The booty remained from the plunder which the men of war had taken was 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, 32,000 persons in all of women who had not known a man intimately. And the half, the portion of those who had gone into war was in number 337,500 sheep. And the Lord's tribute of the sheep was 675. The cattle were 36,000, of which the Lord's tribute was 72. And the donkeys were 30. 1,500 of which the Lord's tribute was 61. The persons were 16,000 of which the Lord's tribute was 32 persons. So Moses gave the tribute which was the Lord's heave offering to Eliezer the priest as the Lord commanded Moses. And from the children of Israel, half which Moses separated from the men who fought. Now the half belonged to the congregation was 337,500 sheep, 36,000 cattle, 30,500 donkeys, and 16,000 persons. And from the children of Israel, half Moses took on every 50 drawn from man and beast and gave them to the Levites who kept charge of the tabernacle of the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. Then the officers who were over the thousand, the army, the captains of the thousands, and the captains of hundred, came near to Moses, and they said to Moses, Your servants have taken account of the men of war who are under our command, and not a man of us is missing. Therefore we have brought an offering to the Lord what every man found of ornaments of gold, armlets, branklets, armlets, and bracelets, signet rings and earrings and necklaces to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. So Moses and Eliezer the priests received the gold from them, all the fashion ornaments and all the gold of the offering they offered to the Lord from the captains of thousands and captains of hundreds was 16,750 shekels. The men of war had taken spoil every man for himself. And Moses and Eliezer the priests received the gold from the captains of thousands and hundreds brought into the tabernacle meeting as a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord. A couple interesting thoughts before we go to chapter 32 in the tribes on the east side of the river. Um, two things that get our attention 
God ensured that the plunder was not just for those who were victorious in the battle, that it was went to the priesthood and to the Lord, and it went to the people in general. So there was a, a spreading out of the wealth for the entire amount of people, which is very interesting just in the fact that they, they all received an inheritance from this together, whether they went to combat or not. It wasn't just for the 12,000 that they were successful. It was all the Lord over everything. And then, of course, how can you miss verse 49 where it says, not a man of us is missing? Like, how many armies do you know with 12,000 troops going into heavy combat against superior forces come back without losing one person? I mean, you lose people just from friendly fire and, and, and a Jeep accident landed in Normandy, right? Like, if you know anything about war, logistically, people die just from mishaps. Like, we lost 7,000 troops in a, in a liner in World War II that never got off a ship. You know that, right? 7,000 Americans died on one ship in port that never got off that ship in World War II. I mean, you send all those, you know, B-17s, B-24s, whatever they were, you know, you send those all over Europe and, you know, like, you get 25 missions, you get to come home and no one got 25 missions because it all gets shot down. We lost 75,000 troops on the, uh, across the Atlantic alone in World War II supporting the, the supply vessels from the outbreak of when the Germans entered Poland, took France and Vichy France and Churchill and England sent alone, all those car- 75,000. We still have 75,000 people. People die every day in the military, right? You just get up and you die and you're still in a uniform. 12,000 people went to major combat and not one died. That's an amazing confirmation that God was with them. That's an amazing confirmation. They went to execute the vengeance of the Lord. They were in God's will and they're completely protected in the most dangerous of circumstances, hand-to-hand combat. And they're protected by the Lord. Completely victorious, not one died. Which just shows that the blessings and protection are in obedience, even when it's difficult things to do. That's why I always say when we're in God's will, we're, we're un, un, unbreakable, we're unbeatable. When you are in God's will, we're unstoppable until he's done with us. And whether we're doing things that seem insignificant or very profound or fairly easy or extremely difficult, we still got to do what we got to do. There are a lot of people in the previous administration who are professing born-again Christians, and we watch them get attacked day after day after day after day, whether they're doing press conferences or just trying to govern like the Vice President Pence or something, and the attacks were just relentless. But until you're done, you're not done. And we just do it as unto the Lord, and if we're canceled, we're canceled. That's between, you know, the the Lord, nothing happens that the Lord isn't allowed. We're singing this song. That you make all things work together for good in our lives, right? Whether it's our failures and mistakes or whether it's just things that God's allowed. I mean, we're singing that song with Scott. I really believe that song. We're singing it, don't you? Yeah. So it's just amazing how not a, not a one of us, not a man of us is missing. That's what happens when we're in obedience to the Lord. We are unstoppable in the easy things and the difficult things. That's why we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And that's why we lean not on our own understanding, but we acknowledge him in all of our ways. We need to know his mind every morning. We cannot take a day off from the Lord ever. The sacrifices were in the morning and they were at night. And we need to be in his will and unstoppable in his will. 
And then when the good day comes or the bad day or the refining fire or the cleansing, whatever it is, we need to know that we are with him and we're doing the best we can in his will and we can give it to him. Now, we're going to read chapter 32. It has the details of the tribe selling on the east and just have like one little thought about this as we go forward tonight. So we'll read the, I'm going to just read through the text like we've done with Leviticus and some other chapters and just read through it. And the background is that as they're on the east side of the Jordan, some of the tribes want to stay there while the other tribes go into war and we'll read the background to it. So now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of livestock. And when they saw the land of uh, Jezer and the land of Gilead, that indeed the region was a place for livestock, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses, to Eleazar the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Atoroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimram, Heshbon, Eleah, Shibam, Nebo, and Bion, the country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel, is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. Therefore they said, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us over the Jordan. And Moses said to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? Now why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? Thus your fathers did when I sent them away to Kadesh Barim to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eskel and saw the land, they discouraged the hearts of the children of Israel, so they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. So the Lord's anger was aroused on that day, and he swore on an oath, saying, Surely none of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me, except Caleb, the son of Jephthah, the Canaanite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And look, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce, the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once again leave you, them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all these people. Then they, they came near to him and said, We will build sheepfold here for our livestock and cities for our little ones, but we ourselves will be armed and ready to go before the children of Israel until we have brought them to their place. And our little ones who dwell in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land, we will not return to our home until every one of the children of Israel has received their, his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has fallen to us on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Then Moses said to them, well, if you do this thing, if you arm yourself before the Lord for the war, and all your armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterwards you may return and be blameless before the Lord and before Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you do not do so, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Build cities for your little ones and folds for your sheep and do what has proceeded out of your mouth. And the children of Gad and the children of Reuben spoke to Moses saying, Your servants will do as my Lord commands. Our little ones, our wives, our flocks, and all of our livestock will be there in the cities of Gilead. But your servants will cross over every man armed for war before the Lord to battle, just as my Lord says. So Moses gave command concerning them to Elias the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the chief fathers of the tribe of the children of Israel. And Moses said to them, If the children of Gad and the children of Reuben cross over the Jordan with you, Every man armed for battle before the Lord, and the land is subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead as a possession. But if they do not cross over armed with you, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. Then the children of Gad and the children of Reuben answered, saying, As the Lord has said to your servants, so we will do. We will cross over armed before the Lord into the land of Canaan, but the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us on this side of the Jordan. So Moses gave the children of Gad to the children of Reuben, and half the tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og of Bashan, the land 
with its cities, within its borders, the cities of the surrounding country. And the children of Gad built Dibon, Atroth, and Arar, Atroth, and Shofan, Jazer, and Jogbeda, Beth Nimran, Beth Haran, fortified cities and folds for the sheep. And the children of Reuben built Heshbon, Eleah, and Kirjaim, Nebo, Baal, Mion, their names being changed, and Shibma, and they gave other names to the cities which they built. And the children of Micar, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilead and took it, dispossessed the Amorites who were in it. So Moses gave Gilead to Micar, the son of Manasseh, and he dwelt in it. Also Jair, the son of Manasseh, went out and took its small towns and called them Havatair. Then Naboth went and Kineath in its villages, and he called it Naboth after his own name. So we see these two and a half tribes settling on this side, the east side of the river. So Reuben, Gad, and then half the tribe of Manasseh. And then the, we get the breakdown in the latter part of the chapter of the descendants of Manasseh, who are descendants of Joseph, and how they went out and each took a possession and got their inheritance for themselves and for their descendants. And so they did settle on the east side of the Jordan. Now, before we have a final thought on that, just point out to you where Moses, of course, was very concerned that what these guys are doing is going to discourage everybody. Like, there was a concern here, like, wait a second, we're all in this together, so you're going to, we conquered this, which wasn't even our objective, and, like, you're going to take that, and we're going to go over here, and we have to fight these battles. Like, what's up with that? And so Jordan, that side of the Jordan was the promised land, but not so much the east side, and so then Moses comes back and says, hey, you guys, like, you can't discourage the brethren, and like, no, that's not our objective. It's a perfect fit. We have livestock. It's a good land for livestock. Let's, we'll go to war, and we'll come back when it's done. Now, we know historically that's what they did. They did keep their word. They did go do what they said they're going to do, and they did help the nine and a half tribes settle on the other side that were promised inheritance, and that was their inheritance on that side. So they did not discourage the people. They actually did go and do what they said they were going to do, and for them, there's credit for that. And that strong exhortation from Moses, if you don't do it, your sin will find you out, which it always does for everybody, myself, you and I, all of us, the church included. Fortunately, we're under the grace of Jesus Christ for that. And then they, they settle in, they build these fortified cities, and they're, they're going to they're gonna do this. And I just close with this thought. God does give us choice, doesn't he? Like, he, he, these guys, this is what they want to do, and he let them do it. We do have choice. Like, God gives us choices, and we make choices. There's a certain fullness of self-determination under the sovereignty of God that God allows to have happen. Sam and I had the conversation a couple of weeks ago about permissive will, or I just call it plan A or plan B. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know how to distinguish, like, absolute or... I, listen, man, I know, like, when you match up the decisions with the Word of God, you're going to always be in the right. If you kind of go in ambiguous gray areas, fuzzy areas, I can't guarantee you're going to be in the right. Let, let God be true to man a liar. So we talk about like plan A and plan B. And like the song we were singing, our mistakes and failures, God uses those for good. And, it, and he does. And it's all redeemed on the day of the Lord. But what gets my attention about these tribes here is they settle for this side. They settle for this side. And they had a pretty good argument for it. They, they sold Moses on it. I mean, Moses was like, okay, yeah, you know, as long as you don't discourage people, you get your weapons and you go do your part, you can come back here, this is your part. And the other tribes are like, hey, it's not bad for us. These guys, that's, that's two and a half more tribes worth of space that we get for our tribes, right? If you think it through, I mean, think about it. They're, they're, hey, that's, that's, that's 400,000 less people we've got to give land to on this side with the sea breeze. So if they want to live in the valley where it's hot, because it's hotter in that valley than it is in Tel Aviv, then that's good for us. Yeah, sure. But they better come to war with us. They got to do their part. Then they can have that land. 
But the funny thing about these decisions, and this has me thinking, has, is whenever we talk about the, the tribes on the east, we know that eventually they just kind of disappeared. Like, they just kind of disappeared. Like, where'd they go? Like, there's not one battle where they disappeared, like, and then they're all wiped out and taken away. You don't have anything like that. They just kind of, they just kind of disappeared. They lost their identity. And there's other people groups that occupy those territories later on. And eventually, you just don't even, you don't even hear about them. Like, where'd they go? What happened to them? They just sort of vanished on the east side of the Jordan River. They, they settled for something less, which was reasonable, and eventually, they just kind of disappear. They certainly disappear from the storyline. All the incredible things in the book of Joshua, they're part of it, actually, the soldiers, but then the book of Judges, First and Second Samuel, all those things, like this, they're just not really, they're, they're just, they're not there. They're not there at the heroes. The storyline for the rest of the narrative in the Old Testament is what's happening on this side of the Jordan. Not on the east side. And it just has me thinking, I want to make sure I'm on the right side of the Jordan River. And so are you. We want to be part of the storyline of what God is doing with plan A, with his church in 2021. Plan A for your life, for this church, the body of Christ. We want to be on the right side of the river. Not, not so much because like, oh, you know, we just don't want to settle for less. Like, we don't want to settle for less. Like, some people just kind of downshift and settle for less. And now as I've gotten older, I've said this many times about Pastor Chuck, because I have the images of Pastor Chuck dying in the pulpit. And there's just something like, so many people thought, like, he needs to retire. He needs to find a gracious exit. No, he didn't. And the older I get, the more I appreciate how he just wasn't going to, he was going to do what he was called to do until his last breath because he still taught a Sunday and he passed away before another Sunday came that's an, I could cry I mean that is just you think Pastor Chuck cares what Joey Brand thinks about him in the pulpit in 2000, 2011 or any of us when you're dying of cancer you only care about one thing Jesus who you see sitting at the right hand of the Father right up over here and as best you can to complete what you've been entrusted to do until you're done. Why didn't you make a decision about this, that, and everything else for when you're gone? Because you know what? Because <laughs> there's a lot in the Bible that says they can figure it out. I'm going to finish strong. I don't want to settle for the east side and fade away softly and pass on to my children and my children's children that we just faded away softly. I don't want to leave that legacy to future generations that come from my descendants and the spiritual descendants I have in the body of Christ going back 33 years now. I don't want that to be my legacy. I want to make sure I'm on the right side of the Jordan River and that I'm part of the storyline that goes forward for my generation. I don't want to fade into oblivion, not in the narrative of what God is doing. I want to be on this side, all in, come hell or high water, part of the narrative, good, bad, and ugly in the human experience for the church, right to the finish line. And so do you. Do not settle for less on this side. But get after whatever it is on this side 
and do it as best we can till the end. I actually have more vision now approaching 60 than I've ever had for the kingdom of God. It's different kind of vision. It's more like things going, like putting things in a good way for after I'm gone. And give David credit because David didn't, was told he couldn't build the temple, King David, but he did do things to prepare things for Solomon and all that Solomon could, could run with and take it to another level when he was gone. David fought the battles for total victory to set Solomon up to do great things. Now, Solomon did some great things but made some bad decisions, but that's on Solomon. But David really set him up. David took most of his wealth and gave it to the Lord for the work of the Lord for when he was gone. It's like he put in his trust and his will and all these things. It all goes to the Lord. So when you open the trust, all those sons from these different women, yeah, I mean, they got something there, but man, that all goes to the Lord. That's on this side of the Jordan. That's on this side. That's the narrative. That's the ongoing historical narrative. So let's make sure in 2021 that we're on the right side, all in, where the narrative is of what's happening now, where the fullness is of the promises and the work of God. Don't settle for the wrong side of the river. Amen.